it'll be on the screen behind me. Uh, you can get there on your phone or in your Bible, whatever you prefer. Um, I want to mention that immediately following church today, we have a connection class uh, that I will be teaching. It's right on the other side of this back wall in the Crestmont Cafe. Anyone is welcome to join. Whether you just want to know more about our church um, or you are interested in becoming a member at Crestmont, which is a way for you to say, this is my home church, I want to be part of what's happening here. Uh, then you can join in. I should introduce myself. If you're a visitor, my name is Joel Repick, and I'm the lead pastor here at Crossmont. If you don't know who I am, but I would love the opportunity to get to meet you, and the class provides an opportunity for that. Um, so normally the class is less than an hour long. We would just love to tell you more about our church and give you the opportunity uh, to come in closer to relationship with us if that's something you're interested in or you just have questions that need answered too. So immediately following the service on the other side of the wall there. Um, Crestmont, sometimes throughout the week, I just start thinking about all of the reasons that I love you. Can I be mushy for a second? Um, All of the reasons why I love you. And one reason is this. Um, You know, from time to time, I get together with pastors, you know, who are serving congregations. And one thing when pastors get together and they talk about is the pressure that they often feel from their congregations to perform, um, to say everything just right, to get it right all the time. And I have to tell you, when I uh, am around that kind of conversation with pastors, I just think about how different my experience has been at this church. And I just want you to know, I know I don't get it right all the time. Um, I know I leave conversations or sermons, and I think, wow, I could have said that better or expressed myself better or handled that better. But rarely do I have the feeling that that's not going to be met with grace uh, from you all. And I just want to thank you so much for the grace that you show me. It's so much easier, isn't it? I'm sure you feel this too. It's so much easier to minister and to be in life together when grace defines our relationships, right? Um, And what we need is grace, right? And when God does that among us, it frees us up uh, to be who we are. And so I want to thank you for all the ways that you free me up uh, to be who I am as God has called me to to lead you in this way. So thank you so much. Um, Today begins the beginning of our Easter series, uh, which will take us through Easter at the beginning of April and a little bit beyond. But this is also the last leg of our journey through the Gospels, the first four books in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, describe to us in detail the life of Jesus. And we've been going through these four books chronologically since three years ago. And it has been an amazing journey. We've taken some breaks, but we are at the end of this journey, and it's going to take us to the cross, which is the climax of Jesus' mission, right? It's why he came uh, to give his life as a sacrifice for us out of love for us. So what we're going to do over the next few weeks is we're going to look at some of the final moments before Jesus went to the cross. And then at the end of this month, we'll have a Good Friday service, the Friday before Easter, and we'll remember his sacrifice for us, and we'll take communion together. And then we will celebrate uh, on that Sunday um, his resurrection from the dead because our Savior lives. But in the next few weeks, we are going to be in some of the lowest emotional points of Jesus' life. This is as real as it gets for Jesus. 
Um, this is where the rubber hits the road, so to speak. This is where he's beginning to experience what he's been talked about, what he's been talking about, what he knows has been coming, but now it's right up in his face, the pain that he's going to experience for us. And so we're going to look at some of these moments over, over the next few weeks together. So before we read, let me just explain to you where we're at. Jesus has spent his final evening with his disciples. He has shared a meal with them. Um, he has prayed with them. And now he takes them to a place, a garden called Gethsemane, that's at the foot of a mountain uh, in Jerusalem called the Mount of Olives, uh, an olive grove where olive trees grew. And Gethsemane literally means oil press. And I want you to remember that because that's going to be significant later on. One of Jesus' disciples, Judas, who's a traitor, has already left and has put together a plot to get Jesus arrested and killed, so he's disappeared. So Jesus takes the other 11 disciples who have journeyed with him for these last years, and he takes them to this garden called Gethsemane. And when he gets there, he invites the three disciples that he was closest to, Peter, James, and John, to come off from the rest of them, and they go into what we think may have been like an enclosed part of the garden where they actually did the oil pressing, where they turned the olives into oil. Um, and there he begins to pray. And Scripture tells us that more than prayer, just prayer, he begins to be troubled. He begins to sorrow because he knows he is just hours away from his arrest and from his terrible torture and death. This is where Jesus is at, and he begins to sorrow in front of them. So we're going to read this together. Um, it's often our custom to stand in honor of God's word. If you would do that this morning, so we read Matthew 26, and we'll begin in verse 36. It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. You may be seated. So Jesus begins to sorrow in prayer. Uh, he begins this violent, emotionally violent process of grieving what it is that's about to happen to him. He asks his closest disciples to be there for him, in a sense. Jesus, in his humanity, wants his friends to be there with him in this moment. And three times he goes back to finding them sleeping. 
What Jesus is praying about is he's asking the Father that if there's another way for this cup to be passed from him, he's asking that that would be possible. That picture of a cup is used in the Old Testament to describe the wrath of God. And Jesus understands what's about to happen to him. The wrath of God is about to be poured out on him on the cross, even though we are the ones who deserve to be recipients of that. Jesus is about to step in and take that punishment for us. And so he's asking the Father, if there's another way to do this besides the cross, then let that, let that other plan, if there's a plan B, let that happen. But each time he says, but not my will, but your will be done. This is a very emotionally real and raw moment for Jesus. One time when he comes back to the disciples and he finds them sleeping, he tells them that one of the reasons they should keep sleep, they should keep not sleeping but praying, is because um, a time of trial, a time of testing is coming and, and if they're going to make it through this, if they're going to make it through this season of temptation, they need to be vigilant in prayer. But for whatever ever reason, Peter, James, and John can't see the seriousness of this moment. Their eyes get heavy. They never get that jolt of adrenaline to keep them up, even though Jesus is suffering the way that he is. Now, before we get into anything else related to this passage, I just want to say this. This is in the most intense emotional suffering that a person can go through. Jesus is about to go to the cross. If the cross is where Jesus goes through the worst physical pain imaginable, which he does. And therefore, we know that there's no kind of physical pain that you and I could go through that is worse than what he went through, right? I mean, he was utterly tortured. His body absolutely mistreated, right, at the cross in the worst kinds of ways. If Jesus identifies with physical pain at the cross, it's in Gethsemane at this garden where he identifies with our emotional pain and anguish. Here, Jesus experiences that to the full extent. It says, the way Jesus describes it is, I am troubled to the point of death. I would rather die than feel what I'm feeling. Now, I bet there are many of us in this room who have never reached that emotional breaking point before, but there are some in this room who have. We have names for it in our culture. Depression, so on and so forth. We call it different things. And I've noticed this, that people who have had this real battle with emotional and mental anguish often wonder if there's a place for them in the storyline of the church. They often wonder if there's a place for them in a gathering like this, if there's a place for them in ministry. Listen, if that's you, if you've reached this point where you feel like you are at the end of yourself emotionally and you don't have anything else to offer and it feels like death would be relief, if that is where you have been before, I want to tell you this. I'm so sorry that sometimes church people don't know what to say. We don't. I'm so sorry that sometimes we don't know how to handle it, that sometimes we give a cheap answer, and I'm so sorry that sometimes it feels like you don't belong. But I want to tell you this. If you have a place with Jesus in your suffering, then you have a place in the church in your suffering, right? And there is a place in Jesus' storyline for the people who've been at the end of their rope emotionally, who have nothing left in them emotionally. Jesus was there. He knows what that feels like. And I want to encourage you. It might not be an answer to your suffering, but I want you to know this. Jesus is the man of sorrows, troubled and wailing and crying in Gethsemane. And that Jesus is your Jesus too. 
no matter what you're going through, no matter where you're at this morning. The real question is, is there a place with Jesus, right? And if there's a place with Jesus, there's a place in his church too. So I hope at the very least, even if it doesn't take away the pain, that there's something in this story that provides you with some kind of consolation that the God that you pray to did not just watch our pain from a distance, but he dove into it in the person of Jesus. Jesus is fully God, fully a human being, and he experienced the full extent of pain, whether it was physical or it was emotional. That's who you pray to. That changes the picture, doesn't it? That's who you pray to. He understands. He's been there, even to a deeper level than we have been. Now, we've been asking some questions when we look at passages like this, and I'm going to do the same thing this morning. The first question is, who is God? Well, we read it in an Old Testament prophecy from the book of Isaiah. It was written hundreds of years before Jesus was even on the earth. We read it in our reading today that Jesus is the man of sorrows. Jesus knows what it's like to hurt. He knows what it's like to go through this pain. And like I said, if that's who's in charge of the church, then there's room for sorrow in the church, right? Jesus calls the shots about what's allowed in the church, right? And if Jesus experienced suffering, then our stories of suffering have a place here too. So what does this mean about who we are then? If this is who God is, if Jesus is a man of sorrows, if this is one of his names, if it's one of the ways in which he revealed himself, revealed something about the heart of God to us, then who are we? Well, it means that I am forever comforted and temporarily suffering. Now, I want to explain what I mean by this. Every time we use these questions and we look at God's identity and then we ask, okay, what's our identity in light of who God is? We have tried to make a distinction between what is eternal and related to identity and what is temporary and might be God's assignment for us, right? Assignments come from God, but they might not be eternal and they might not be our identity. God can give us temporary assignments, right? For instance, I, you just heard my heart. I absolutely love being pastor here, but I will not do this for eternity, Right? You're like, thank goodness, we're wondering when this is going to end. Listen, I, I will not do this for eternity, all right? And I fully believe that the assignment that I have right now in ministry is from the Lord. I have such a deep sense of that. But my identity is not wrapped up in being pastor here, you see? And your identity shouldn't be wrapped up even in the assignments that God has given you. Assignments can be a clue as to what our identity is but they're not the same thing, right? Our identity is what we will take with us forever. It's who God made us to be forever, and he knew that that's what we were gonna be before we were even born, right? In the heart and mind of God, our identity was decided. So here's what I'm saying. Comfort, Jesus won, for us, won that for us at the cross. And not because of any good of our own, but just because of the love of God, what he's poured out for us at the cross, because he entered this kind of suffering, it means that we are forever the recipients of his comfort. That's an issue of identity. We will experience his comfort forever. That's why it says stuff in Revelation that he will wipe every tear from our eye, right? He has directed all of his comfort toward us. 
But here's the tension. That does not mean that in this life we will not experience assignments of suffering. The two seem like they're in contradiction, but the Bible is very comfortable with this tension, with talking about suffering and talking about comfort in the same sentence. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians, he says it this way as he's describing his ministry. He says, just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. He's saying this is what ministry looks like. We experience greater and greater degrees of comfort from Jesus, and we also share in his suffering to greater and greater degree. Both of these realities are existing on parallel tracks in the Apostle Paul's life. He's experiencing both of them as real. This was the case for Jesus. Listen, we read it in in our reading this morning. Jesus ends up at the place after his resurrection of exaltation, right? Freed from his suffering, the place of glory at the right hand of the Father. And it's actually this hope, this promise that lets him suffer the way he did. It says it in Hebrews 12 too. We've already said this verse in the past in the service today. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning at shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus never suffered apart from knowing who he was. See, It's the person who knows who they are that can suffer to an even greater and greater degree. He knew what was coming for the joy set before him. He was going to win for his father a family. That family was us. He knew that there was glory ahead. He knew who he was. And this allowed him to suffer with the kind of resolve and courage that he did, even though the pain was real, even though the emotions were real. And this means that you and I also get to suffer with hope. Paul says it this way in Romans 8, I consider that our present sufferings, that's assignment, are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's identity. See, I can go through what I'm going through now because who I am is yet to be fully revealed, and it's glory. See, God may have an assignment of suffering for me, but that suffering is not my identity. It's an assignment. But something's coming that's going to far outweigh this assignment. My identity is going to far outweigh it. It has to do with God's glory in the future kingdom. So we live in this tension of experiencing his comfort, but also experiencing temporary suffering. So what does this mean about what God might be saying to us? I just want to suggest these three things about how we suffer. First of all, if Jesus is the man of sorrows, that's his identity, and if who I am is a recipient of his comfort forever and a recipient of temporary assignments of suffering, then it means that I can suffer meaningfully. The only thing worse than suffering is having the sense that our suffering doesn't mean anything. I can wait in line forever for Brewster's ice cream. I really struggle waiting in line at the PennDOT Driver's License Center, right? It has everything to do with meaning, right? It has everything to do about if this means anything in the grand scheme of things, right? But see, if I know I can suffer with meaning, my capacity for suffering increases. I think many times what we're really afraid of is not just suffering, but suffering and this gnawing fear that it doesn't mean anything in the end. 
That's some of what we're really most afraid of. I don't know if you've ever been near the kind of suffering that just has like layer and layer and layer of suffering on top of it, and at some point this hopelessness starts to settle in. Like, does this have any meaning at all? If you've walked with someone through a prolonged illness, you know, I mean, even when you're trusting the Lord, even when you know like that he's in control, this thing starts to settle in. Like, really? Really, Lord? Can we be honest? Can we talk in church honestly? I mean, that question rises up in us. Like, really? Another layer of suffering on top of that? On top of what has already been experienced? Or, or if you've experienced tragic and early death, you know, somewhere near to you in your life, it, we struggle with that because there's a sense of meaningless to it, Right? Does this mean anything in the end? And this is why I think it's important that we remember where Jesus is headed in Gethsemane. He's headed to the cross. And here, it's helpful for us to remember not just that he died for us, but how he died for us. You see, the cross was specifically chosen as the means of death for Jesus by the Father. Why? Well, think about this. The, the historical backdrop here, right, is that the Roman Empire is in charge. And they were the ones who came up with the method of execution called crucifixion. Even still, scholars say it is the worst way devised by any human empire, any human society to kill someone. Now, think about this. If the Roman Empire was only interested in killing its political en enemies, why not just run a sword through the person? and end it? Why not just kill them, be done with them? It's because the Roman Empire had more in mind than just killing people. It had in mind stripping meaning from their suffering. Because you see, when the way you kill someone is to torture them again and again and again before you do it, and then to kill them in a prolonged way that extends their torturing until their final breath, the message is not just that this person is a political enemy of Rome and deserves to die. The message is this person's life doesn't matter. This person's political cause doesn't matter. This person's people doesn't matter. This is why Rome would sometimes line roads, well-traveled roads in the Roman Empire with people hanging on crosses. See, it wasn't just about killing people. It was a political messaging campaign to say this person and who they represent, there's no meaning in this. And that's why we can mistreat this body the way that we are because there's no meaning in it. And do you see why? This is exactly why the Father put the cross in front of Jesus. He wanted Jesus to enter into the place where humans are doing everything they can to strip away meaning from other humans and in that place to make it full of meaning. To take the cross, which seems like the most meaningless, horrific form of suffering, and to make it meaningful forever. You see, the cross will be the most meaningful symbol forever. <laughs> you know? It will. Jesus did this because he wanted to send us a message. It doesn't matter how meaningless it feels. Oh, think about all of like, the, the temptation to feel hopeless and meaningless about what happened at the cross and how all of it meant something. It's like the flogging of Jesus' back. 
became for us by his stripes, you are healed. Right? The crown of thorns became a picture for us of our king who would reign forever. The blood that flowed from him became for us our salvation. We sing about that blood. We claim and pray about those stripes. See, this place in the Roman Empire that was completely meaningless, Jesus entered into it in such a way with his love that he made it all meaningful for us. And that means, friends, whatever pain you wonder has meaning in your life, I want to promise you it has meaning. That's what the message of the cross means. It may hurt more than you think you can take, but it has meaning. It's packed with meaning. I don't care what it is, the tragedies that surround your life, the the wearisome troubles that seem like it never ends, the abuse that you endured and you wonder, does this have meaning? The cross means that if Jesus is in it, anything that seems meaningless can all of a sudden be full of meaning for yourself and for other people and for all eternity. This is the power of the way that Jesus suffers for us. So I can suffer meaningfully. It also means that I can suffer obediently. Listen, sin is ultimately my choice, right? I do it because I want to do it. I do it because I chose to do it. In the end, I can't blame the devil for the things I did wrong, right? I can't blame my circumstances for the thing I did wrong. Ultimately, that is on me, right? But it is so often true, isn't it? that the places where we sin are in proximity to the places of our pain, that there's something about experiencing pain that very often leads us to sin. Our pain leads us to unbelief about God and his character, and this causes us to engage all kinds of things we shouldn't engage. Our pain leads to bitterness, which causes us to cut off relationships and experience isolation. Our pain leads to a desire to just escape this by any means possible, which leads us to all kinds of ways to numb what we're going through. That's our story. That's the story of the human race. It's the story of Jesus' own disciples who are falling asleep in this painful moment. But here's what Jesus did. He went through the worst kind of pain imaginable, this mental and emotional anguish, and he did it without sin. That's his record. It's really different than our record. The author of Hebrews, I think we've already read this in the service at some point, says, son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered. How could Jesus learn obedience? He never sinned. He was perfect. Well, it's because Jesus tested the lowest points of emotional and mental anguish, and he was still obedient there. Now, this is where that's freedom for us. This is what happens. When God looks at us because of the cross, We get Jesus' record on these things. See, our record is that our pain very often has led us to all kinds of sin. His record is that his pain drove him to his father again and again and again. He endured this pain and he never sinned. That becomes our record. No matter how much you've messed up, that's your record with pain. If you're in Jesus, from the perspective of the father, he sees Jesus' record with pain. He sees Jesus' obedience with pain. And because that has just been given to me, it means that I can face all future pain and I can be obedient in it. No matter how bad it is, 
Jesus has put His Spirit in me so that I can face that thing. And it doesn't have to result in my destruction or the destruction of other people. And if I doubt that, I look at my Savior in Gethsemane and I see His perfect record there for me. So I can suffer meaningfully, I can suffer obediently, and I can also suffer victoriously. See, a lot of us have learned to suffer as victims and not victors. And I want to tell you, suffering as a victor can be just as painful as the other one. This isn't about levels of pain. It's about the outcome. Do you remember, I shared with you, that the meaning of the word Gethsemane is oil press. I love this. Watch this. It means oil press. There were olive trees in that garden. And olives are great. I love a good olive. (laughs) Olives are great. But you can do so many things with olive oil, especially in Jesus' day. Olive oil is a prized prized product that a lot of the economy was dedicated to, right? And so olive oil can be used for lamps in the house. It can be used for cooking. It can be used even for religious reasons. We still use olive oil in our services as a symbol of the power and presence of God when we anoint each other with it. It's an important product in Scripture. But how do you get olive oil? You crush those olives. You crush them. See, Jesus didn't just stumble into Gethsemane. He knew right where he needed to be for this time. This was the place of his crushing. But you see, what he knew was that when olives get crushed, olive oil is what comes out. When olives get crushed, That's the pain. That's the temporary suffering. But the olive oil is what comes out, and that's glory. That's identity. That's everything that God wants to accomplish through the pain. That didn't lessen Jesus' emotional anguish at all, but it did let him see the big picture in his pain, that the crushing was meaningful, he could be obedient in it, and that this was going to result in victory, that he was going to overcome that place of meaninglessness, overcome Satan and his bondage on the human race, overcome sin, overcome death, that his crushing was going to result in that. Olive oil was going to come out. This is the privilege of the Christian. I wish I could tell you, some preachers will, if you give them enough money. Some preachers will tell you, some preachers will tell you that if you just give enough money, you can escape the crushing. I want to tell you something different. I don't trust a leader who hasn't been through the crushing. You really can't trust someone in the faith. You're not going to go to your, with your pain to somebody who hasn't been through the crushing and you saw olive oil come out on the other side. Because listen, if something else came out, right, then olives didn't get crushed, right? We go to the people, we go to the people who were crushed and the victory came out. Even though it hurt, even though it felt like they weren't going to make it. So I wish I could tell you that that this isn't going to be our story. But friends, it is. Um, This is my last point. I need to move on to this. Listen, so what are we going to do about it? I just want to, there's probably so many points of application you could leave here with, but I, I want to just leave you with this, that this is what we can do about it. We can begin to suffer with other people. 
we can begin to suffer with other people. See, if I don't have to be afraid of suffering, like this hurts intensely bad, but I don't have to be afraid of it, I can suffer meaningfully, obediently, and victoriously, then it also means that I don't have to turn away from the suffering of other people. I think the real reason we very often turn away from the suffering of other people, even in the church, is because there's something in it that scares us. We don't want to get near it. It, it said it in the passage out of Isaiah in our reading today that people couldn't look at him. Right? People couldn't look at what Jesus went through because they figured that something must be wrong with him or wrong with the way God viewed him or whatever because because we're just looking at the surface of things, right? But if I'm not afraid of suffering in my own life, then it means I can stand next to people in their own suffering. If you guys could come. It means that I can stand next to people in their suffering. The Apostle Paul, one time when he's writing uh, to a church in an ancient city called Colossae, he writes about a friend of his named Epaphras. He says this, Epaphras who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in the will of God. What does that word wrestling mean there in Colossians? It means this. It comes from the, the root word that we get our English word agony from. He's saying, you know what Epaphras does for you? He agonizes in prayer for you again and again. See, we can begin to suffer with other people it's called ministry. In all kinds of loving ways, stand with them in their suffering. We saw a beautiful example of that in, in the movie that we watched, that little video clip. But I just want to say this, because it's unavoidable in this passage, that the place to begin standing and suffering with other people is in prayer. See, this is the amazing thing about Gethsemane. Jesus, really all he wanted was his boys to pray for him, Right? That's all he wanted in this moment, right? He didn't need them to take away the pain. He didn't need them to like explain things away. He didn't need them to buy him a Big Mac, right? What he needed was for them to enter into the agony with him. How? In prayer. Now, the crazy thing is, it's so flip-flopped, Jesus' boys let him down. They're sleeping. Every time he goes back, they're sleeping. And as it turns out, Jesus is actually carrying the load for them too. Even in this, he's the one carrying the load for them. He's the one carrying the grief for them. This is the beginning of him carrying their sin. It's actually flip-flopped. They fail, but Jesus comes through. So Jesus' track record is perfect with suffering. And now, I just wonder if Jesus, in, in his exalted place, where he's seated at the right hand of God, if from that place of exaltation and vindication, sometimes I wonder if he still doesn't look over the world, see a community that doesn't know him, sees whole people groups that have never even heard his name, sees people who are running from him, and I still wonder if there isn't an invitation to us to agonize, if there isn't an invitation to us to enter into his pain, but here's the thing. You might say, like, well, my prayer life stinks. How am I supposed to do that? And frankly, I don't care enough sometimes. Well, here's the thing. Just like for the disciples, Jesus carries the load. He carries the load, and he'll share with you what he has. 
Friends, I want to share this with you. Sometimes, you know, I get into a deep place in prayer for the church. And we're asking God for some big things here at Crestmont. We're asking him for some big things that are beyond what makes sense, that are beyond what we could imagine. And I can tell you this, I have times in prayer where I just feel like God says to my heart, yeah, you can have those things, but you know there's going to be suffering involved. There's no way to come into these things without an experience of suffering. Now, you're going to suffer meaningfully. You're going to suffer obediently. You're going to suffer victoriously, but there's no way. There's no way to see the kingdom in some of the ways that you're asking without suffering. So, so here's what I wonder if we can be, if we can be the kind of people who don't turn away from suffering when we see it. Don't turn away from it in our community. Don't turn away from it in the community out there. But I wonder if we can be the kind of people who say, God, we need you. Jesus, we need your prayer life. You're the one who stayed up all night. We'll just fall asleep. You're the one who kept agonizing in prayer for the will of God to come through. We need you to link us with you in prayer, with the suffering of other people in prayer, so that we can see this thing through until olive oil comes out. I just feel him taking us to a deeper place in prayer. And that's not about working something up. It's not just about being more disciplined. It's about receiving from him something that we don't have. If you could stand to your feet. Michael, I think you're closing the service. If you could come forward. But I just want to say this. In the last, uh, in the last year or so, maybe two years at Crestmont, there's been something happening, an undercurrent of growing prayer and intercession in our church. You might not see it if you only looked at Sunday morning, but I really believe in our church there's more people praying and praying meaningfully and praying even in the places of suffering than we've ever experienced before as a congregation. I just want to speak over those prayers that they will not be wasted in Jesus' name. The Lord hears. And, and here's one thing that's happened. Over, over the last couple years, people have come to me privately, not looking for attention, and they've said, Pastor Joel, I don't know what's happening, but sometimes when I go to prayer, I'm wrecked with tears for the community that I'm praying for, for a people group halfway around the globe, for people in my own life. And, and I know it's not me because quite frankly, I don't care that much. But all of a sudden, I'm overwhelmed with compassion. I want to tell you this, the burden that you feel, if that's you, if that's not you, don't worry about it. But if that's you, the burden that you feel is Jesus' burden to carry. He carried it in Gethsemane. He'll carry it through to the end. But there are these tender moments when he will come near to us and say, why don't you feel a little bit of what I feel for the world? I think there's some of you who God has given grace and hunger for you to want to experience more. I'm not talking about a certain experience, like if I cry or I don't cry. I'm just talking about the compassion of God to agonize in prayer, to sustain your prayer life. If you want more of that, I, I just feel led to pray that over you this morning. If you want more of that, would you just extend your hands just where you're seated, no need to move. Jesus, you're an intercessor. You pray when we're falling asleep. 
You pray meaningfully, obediently, victoriously in the places where we hurt. Lord, I feel you even calling out some of the painful stories in our congregation and saying, I want that painful story for prayer. I want that painful story to birth more prayer in Crestmont and and for the community and for the nations. So Lord, we give you what we have. Our weak prayer lives, our falling asleep in the middle of the night, when you've asked us to stay awake, we give that to you. We give you our pain. And we say, Lord, send on us the spirit of prayer. The spirit of Jesus that leads us to pray in agony. Lord, we just say, if you want to use us towards that end, use us. Our emotions are yours. Our minds are yours. Our tear ducts are yours. We welcome the tears of heaven in our church for a lost and hurting world. We welcome prayer that's that's propped up and carried by you, nothing worked up, but is, is nonetheless agony for people who need to see breakthrough. Agony for people who haven't heard you. Agony for those who are suffering. We welcome that. Lord, we pray that you would take us even further in that place of prayer. In Jesus' name.